Hello, uh, welcome to the podcast. Uh, my name's Ian Lewins, one of the consultant uh, paediatricians based in Derby. Um, and it's my very great pleasure to be joined today uh, by Dr. Robert Scott Jupp, who's a, a now retired uh, consultant paediatrician uh, based in Salisbury District Hospital. Good morning, Robert. How are you today? Uh, good morning, Ian. It's a pleasure to join your podcast. Thank you. Um, and we've sort of got in contact to sort of chat about um, a paper uh, that's being published in uh, Archives of Disease in Childhood, which really caught my eye. Um, and it's a paper that you, you've written along with uh, Emily Carter and Nick Brown. Um, and it's entitled The Effects of Consultant Residents Out of Hours on Acute Pediatric Admissions. Um, what was the sort of background to this? Why did you guys decide to, to look at this piece of research and write this article? Okay, well, before I talk about the actual um, uh, study itself, I just want to set it in context, if I may, because going back to the 1990s, before there were really any hours-of-work uh, regulations in the NHS and certainly none for consultants, um, uh, nobody was doing resident on-call, although a lot of consultants were back then spending a lot of out-of-hours time, particularly in paediatrics in hospitals. Um, but there were really no rules about it at all, and there was no appropriate payment um, um, what happened was, well, two things happened in the early 2000s. One was the first uh, um, European Working Time Directive rules about um, junior doctors working, which I absolutely supported and having worked horrendous hours when I was much younger myself, when I was training myself, I, I thought it was it was great that there was this was being enshrined in law. So that meant that you could not expect um, trainees, quite rightly, to work the sort of one in twos, one in threes that we did. And so um, uh, that immediately led to a problem of providing cover, middle, adequate middle grade cover for small units where we didn't have that many trainees. And as you couldn't um, recruit huge numbers of trainees because there wouldn't be consultant jobs for them to go to, there was a cap on the number of trainees you could recruit. So how did you fill that gap? Well, that was the background. At the same time, the new consultant contract in the UK came in um, and um, that allowed consultants who were doing a lot of work out of hours to be um, adequately remunerated and to have their hours regulated in a way that have, haven't, hadn't happened before. Previously, there was really no uh, rules or any kind of convention on consultant hours. You just did the work that was necessary. You worked oh. Monday to Friday, uh, full working day, stayed late, came in at weekends and came in in the middle of the night and got no recompense for it, either in terms of money or in terms of time off. So that was a huge change. That was a huge change. And that's what motivated it. Um, what happened in our region, in the Wessex region, is in fact we weren't the first to consider consultant resident on call in paediatrics. And by the way, I think I don't think any other specialties were doing this at the time. I may be wrong about that, but I think paediatrics was amongst the first in the NHS. What happened? Our neighbours in Dorchester down the road were doing it, but doing it in a rather different way to how we did it. And what made the difference is we waited for the new consultant contract to come in, and we could do it on a strictly contractual basis. Um, and without wanting to go into the detail, it meant that we were paid a bit more for being also, more importantly, all time spent resident on call, whether you were actually working or not counted as time working. Um, and that was a big thing. So you, didn't, you could be sitting in your office um, or you could be asleep. And then if you were a resident on call, it counted as time working. And you got a slight pay enhancement for that if it was out of hours and very specific hours at nights and weekends. Um, and that hadn't happened before. So, um, so we were able then to have a way of working that um, allowed consultants to be working out of hours in a reasonable way. From my point of view, um, and I was one of the first people to work it, from my point of view, the most important thing was actually having a guaranteed day off after the night on call. 
And that at the time um, was a big bonus because that didn't happen before. Previously, when I was non-resident on call, I might be called in for a prem baby in the middle of the night, be up all night resuscitating this baby um, and then have to do a full day of clinics the next day. And that's not that wasn't good for me and it wasn't good for my patients. So that 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 actual change um, was a big thing. Um, it wasn't really about the money. It was more about the hours. And then having days off um, after a night on call at the time was a big bonus. Um, I actually wrote an article about it, in, um, which was published in the BMJ, BMJ Careers, actually, in 2005, which was fairly upbeat now, looking back at it, about how um, some of the positives about resident on call. So we were actually considered to be pariahs by some of our consultant colleagues, particularly in other specialties, as letting the side down and Ooh. doing a terrible thing and setting a precedent so um, that uh, by doing this, we were going to devalue consultants. We're, all consultants are going to be con just considered like SHOs and registrars. Um, so we faced quite a lot of opposition, both from within pediatrics and from other specialties. Um, however, I could see and my colleagues could see that really was the only way to uh, maintain the service. Um, the alternatives, which, which is what some people did, was to either um, cease 24-hour service completely and just be a daytime only and, and um, then merge with a neighbouring unit. Uh, that was not geographically, that was not really an option for us. Um, other people um, employed non-consultant career grades to do to cover the shift, so lots of staff grades and trust doctors and people like that at middle grade level. That doesn't always work because these doctors tend to come and go, are often of variable quality, or some, although some are very good, and it's not a particularly good career option for anybody. Um, by doing it the way we did, we could pretty much guarantee high-quality care for children out of hours, given that uh, there was a consultant there. We still had middle grades. We didn't get rid of them. We had four, uh, in theory, four registrars at the time who did some of the nights and weekends, and we did some of the nights and weekends on a complicated rotor. So that was the background. Now, um, the timing of it is we started doing it in about 2005, I think, as I remember, um, and there weren't really enough of us. So we, there were only, when we started, only five of us, we ended up to six consultants. Um, and there still weren't really enough when there were six of us. The main downside of doing consultant resident on call was not enough time to do our daytime work. And that was the problem. Yeah. So it meant that as we were taking days off following nights, the, the, the uh, outpatient clinic waiting times went up. Um, there wasn't enough supervision on the wards during the day, um, and uh, there just there just weren't enough of us around so during the day, and that was a problem. So a few years later, our trust, who was quite, I have to say, support the management, was very supportive about this, uh, decided to expand the consultant numbers to 10. So we uh, appointed four new consultants all in one go in 2009, and then with 10 of us on the rotor, and because some people went part-time and so it got slightly more complicated, but basically 10 people doing it, um, um, it worked much better. So there were enough of us around during the day, and then we could all have much more satisfactory job plans. So um, that's how it worked. Um, the, um, the questions that were asked right at the very beginning, not surprisingly by managers, is that it's expensive. How can you justify the cost? Well, from my point of view, I think you can justify the cost simply that children get better care, and that is enough. However, with a hard-headed uh, financial hat on, um, you need to um, think um, whether there are actual possible savings. I always thought that consultants 
might be less likely to admit children. They might also be less likely to order investigations than more um, junior colleagues um, if they are the only person, the only um, more experienced doctor who sees the child at night. Um, and that might actually save money. I wasn't at all sure whether it would justify the cost, the extra cost of employing consultants rather than registrars. So way back then, I even thought about it. So basically, this study is something I've been thinking about for 10 years before I did it. And um, um, so that's the background. Yeah. And just sort of going back, when this was sort of first mooted, yeah. um, was there sort of universal buy-in from the consultant body or yes. some resistance to it? There was. And that's where I think in, in Salisbury, um, we were particularly lucky. Um uh, one of my um, when we very first started, my very senior colleagues who was about to retire didn't join in, but the, the five of us did. Um, and then when he retired, her, his replacement um, then did join in. So that's why the, it was first five and then six, and we all bought in. And I might also add uh, uh, one of the criticisms was that people said nobody will want to work with you um, yeah. when um, uh, if if you if you force consultants to do resident on call. We didn't find that at all. In fact. Two of the people of the original six, two of my colleagues in the original six who did it, had already worked here as locums in Dorchester down the road, just coincidentally. They happened to. And they willingly applied for jobs knowing that's what we do. And then the four new ones we appointed in 2009 all knew exactly what they were taking on. So um, it was um, – it really um, – uh, we didn't have any problems and we recruited um, extremely good people who are now well settled in. And um, uh, and then uh, since I retired and there's been, a, there's been a little wave of new recruitments as well, all of whom have gone into the job willingly knowing um, and contracted actually to work resident out of hours. It's in their contracts. Yeah, and I, I guess, it, I, suppose, I suppose it makes a difference if everybody's doing it. I think when you, I wonder if there's a difference in, in mindset when you've got almost like a two-tier consultant system where some people do resident and some people don't. Yes, yeah. Actually, Ian, that reminds me, there was a, a big meeting at the college about new consultant ways of working. And I'm trying to remember when it was. It was probably about 10 years ago. Um probably around about 2010. So we've been doing it for a few years, other people think it. And I'm fairly sure there was a representation from Derby there, actually. But anyway, um, I don't think it was you. Um, um, and um, the um, and different people um, uh, talked about different ways of doing it. So I talked about how we uh, did it in Salisbury. There were people from the Royal Free um, who did, were doing it rather differently. And people from all over the country brought together. So, and it wasn't just about resident consultants. It was about other aspects. And a, a document came out. I don't know if it's still available. Um, um, a, quite an authoritative document on you know, new ways of consultant working, which, of course, these days are not new anymore. Now they're pretty standard and routine. Yeah. So – in this study, then, you've kind of done um, a look back at essentially 10 years of, of data of, yeah. of on calls. Um, and my understanding from this was actually it's not the consultant that's resident every single night. There's a mixture between your level two, level three sort of registrar grades and consultants. So, that, so the idea is to sort of say, look, okay, is there a difference in admission rates depending on who's on, basically? That's right, yeah. And although it was not a randomised controlled trial, in practice it almost could have been because the, the rotor ground on in a rather complicated way 
but it just it took no account of the day of the week or the time of year or the month or where we were in the junior doctor's um, rotations. Um, it just ground on. So it was effectively randomized as to which night was which. And there's no way anybody referring a child in would have had any clue as to whether it was a resident consultant or resident registrar. So we were quite confident there were no biases in it, that the, the, um, the population we were dealing with was um, effectively randomized. Right. So, so you know, you don't have person X always does the Monday, person no. Y always does the Tuesday. It no. Does well, what, well, actually, I'll just go in a bit more detail about that. There was in that, um, because of weekdays and weekends, um, for most of the period, most of the weekday nights, Monday to Thursday, were consultant covered. Uh, not all of them, but most of them. And in the weekends, it was half-half. It was about um, half the days and half the nights were consultants or middle grade, respectively. Um, the reason why we had that bias towards consultants doing nights during the weekdays was primarily educational to allow our middle grades to attend more daytime duties during the week, uh, clinics, ward rounds, and all the other stuff that you need to do to complete your training. So we actually deliberately designed it that way to facilitate training of middle grades. So when you were sort of looking at the data, were you looking at, you know, numbers, purely sort of numbers admitted and how long these people were admitted for, depending on whether it was consultant or a middle grade? Yes. Um, we we decided to, um, well, first of all, it was going to be it was going to be impossible to look at diagnoses or any kind of measure, clinical measure of degree of illness. That was just uh, we just didn't have the data for that until, you know, pull the notes of thousands of children was clearly going to be unfeasible. So we went, just went on what data was readily available on the current hospital systems, which is probably no different to any other hospital admission system. So we had time of admission, we had duration of admission, and um, anyone will know who's done this sort of thing is that these aren't terribly accurate, and that there are all sorts of errors because people don't put the actual time in and that sort of thing. But all these errors don't really matter because they're going to be the same for both for both groups. There's no reason why there should be more errors on consultant nights and registrar nights. This sort of data is put in by um, admin staff and nurses, so it really doesn't really make any difference to that. Um, and um, so... Um, uh, so I, I admit that, that, that probably that, that there are inaccuracies in the data, but they should balance out. Um, um, well, what we decided to do as a measure of – so th th just go back a stage. So if there was um, – the, the hypothesis is that um, a less experienced doctor is more likely to admit a child who wasn't very ill rather than sending them home during the night or weekend compared to a consultant who might send that same child home. In other words, a less confident doctor might want yep. to keep the child in overnight. Um, so by looking at those that were less ill, um, we chose to take those that stayed less than 12 hours overall because it's easy to access that data on the assumption that if they came in at, say, I don't know, maybe 11 or eleven o'clock or midnight one night, they would be seen on the ward round the next morning, probably at nine and sent home within 12 hours if there wasn't much wrong with them, some perhaps even earlier than that, perhaps at seven or eight in the morning. So yeah. we thought that the sort of, if you want to say the trivial illness, although obviously it's not trivial to parents, but if you want to use that word, those ones uh, were the ones. That, so that's why we made that division. And um, a substantial number were, I can't remember that number, a substantial minority were less than 12 hour admissions. And I think you probably find that on many children's units. Um, and anyway, the results showed that the difference, although none of the differences were that great, the difference was greater in the those that stayed less than 12 hours between the, the, the in theoretically iller children who stayed more than 12 hours. 
Yes. So, I mean, looking at the results, you've obviously got data grouped into kind of um, slightly different groups. So there's resident, consultant, present or not, Yeah. two groups. Time of day, weekend day or night as two groups. And then your length of stay as less than or more than 12 hours, which seems sort of very sensible. Yeah. Um, and I was interested that you, the way that you've presented. So in in the table in the paper, you, the summary is a summary of admissions with IIR, IRRs. Why did you choose to present it that way? Oh, we had a lot of discussion about these statistics. And I have to say, this is a result of several iterations through peer review. And also my colleague, Nick Brown, who is considerably more knowledgeable and expert at um, statistical things than I am. So the, the simple answer, it was it was his advice and it was accepted by the peer reviewers, um, whereas on an earlier draft, and I won't go into detail, we use slightly different statistical tests that the peer review, the statistical peer review was less happy with. Um, but um, uh, so um, IIRs are, are just a way of, of just explaining the odds of being admitted um, and they're not great. So for all admissions, the IIR is 1.07, which means you're only, I suppose you could say in terms of you're 7% more likely to be admitted if you come in on a registrar night than a consultant night, um, which isn't that much. But because that we've got quite big numbers, it means the 95% confidence intervals are relatively narrow at 1.04 yeah. to 1.09, and it gives a gives surprisingly high p-value for what seems like a small difference. But that's because, in fact, going back to what I was saying, waiting 10 years to do this study, I mean, there were all sorts of reasons why it took so long, but it did mean we'd accumulated a lot of data by then. I think if we'd done it after maybe only three or four or five years, we wouldn't have got, got anything significant because you need lots of numbers to get this, this level of statistical significance. Um, so that's kind of the bottom line, isn't it? That the, the the standout number is this sort of seven percent yeah. uh, dif- difference between resident and non-resident. Yeah. Um, did time? I don't know if you looked at it, but did time of year sort of influence? No, this we at all? we didn't look at that actually, and that was something picked up by the peer reviewers. Um, um, it it would have been difficult in practice to go back and gather that data. With hindsight, we probably should have got it at the in the first set um the first case and when we first started out but we didn't gather the data when extracting it in the first place but again there's no real reason why i mean obviously numbers will be greater in the winter than the summer but it'll yeah. affect both kinds of nights um equally um so i i i i would be surprised if that was a major factor to be honest yeah and i guess the other thing that came into my mind as well as sort of time of year which i guess is related is whether and again it's it's very difficult to look at this whether the the, the sort of bed occupancy influenced people's decision you know in, in winter when there's very few beds the bronchiolitic who's borderline yeah. you might send home versus if i've got lots of beds i might keep them in Absolutely. It would have absolutely, and it always does, and a lot of the time, in fact, possibly most of the time, I think anyone working in a acute pediatric unit will be aware of this. You're always worried about filling up, particularly at night. Um, and that would, But again, there's no reason why that should have affected um, registrar nights any differently to consultant nights. So that should all just balance out. Um, in terms of sort of the registrars making those decisions, um, are all those registrars that you had sort of at similar levels of training or again no, um, they do vary and i might actually just point out and this is a, a, a confess there's a slight error in my in the methods pointed out by one of my colleagues is that i say in the in the methods that the um 
ST grade, middle grades were ST uh, four to eight, but in fact there were some ST threes as well on the middle grade rotor. But anyway, that's just a, just a minor thing. Um, um, so no, they weren't. They are just the way that our registrar rotations they vary. Anything from ST three up to ST eight or even ST eight plus sometimes, uh, and it's it, it, it's random. It depends on just when you know how it is with um, allocation of of posts. It it, um, it depends who's available and who's around. And some of them would have been locums as well. With we a lot of locums filling in. I think the really interesting question that this raises is is the the economic one, and you know fr- from a manager's perspective, is you know we believe that you'll get better care, um, but I guess is seven percent worth paying the consultants versus the middle grades? That's kind of the, the tricky question to answer, isn't it? Yeah. Absolutely. Um, this is just one small aspect of the whole thing. And I would hate anyone to think that this is the be all and end all of it. Um, there are many other ways you could study this, and I hope somebody does. So as I've already mentioned, use of investigations, again, that probably isn't enough to justify economically, but um, doing fewer investigations at night is probably a, a good thing. Um, but perhaps far more importantly, that is is patient and parent satisfaction. Um, and we haven't done that. Maybe we should, with hindsight, have had some sort of um, post-admission follow-up and ask people what they thought of the care they received um, without necessarily telling them that we were comparing consultants and registrars and just see if they, the doctor you saw, um, um, what you thought of them. And that's, that's probably another study. Um, um, it's very difficult to look at long-term outcomes because as you know most kids just get better anyway whatever you do so I don't think it would be to looking at things like sort of um, serious outcomes like intensive care admission and deaths isn't going to get you very far because there were so few Um, but things like parent and uh, patient outcome and asking the kids themselves I think would be very useful yeah, uh, and as you say, as the paper sort of says, you know, admission rates doesn't isn't a necessarily a reflection of quality by any means, yeah. is it? Yeah. Um, oh, and another another outcome measure which I could also add in um, in is um, asking our our tier one doctors, the SHOs, if I'm still allowed to use the term SHO, uh, uh, what they thought. My feeling is that they were universally positive and they very much enjoyed being on call with only a consultant. Nothing against registrars, but I think they mostly valued it. Uh, certainly, that's what came over, and we got very good ratings in our um, GMC um, uh, survey thing as well. Yeah, I think one interesting from 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 my perspective aspect of this is um, is the, the the sort of the, the idea of role modelling as consultants, and yeah. obviously paediatrics is going through a bit of a crisis at the moment in in recruitment, um, and people are looking. You know, I, I look after foundation trainees locally, and people look at paediatrics and go. Well, I don't fancy it compared to GP for, for a couple of reasons. Reason one, it's a long training and, and the college is, is recognised that and is doing something about it. But my goodness, look at the amount of time that the consultants are in hospital compared to the other hospital specialities. Yeah. Um, no thanks. Um, do you think this, this, this sort of paper adds to that discussion? Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, – but – I, I don't really know what you could do about it. So um, I should just say I'm also in my sort of semi-retirement involved peripherally with the RCPCH's initiative to try and imp- improve working lives for trainee paediatricians. And Hilary Cass has just launched a big thing called the CoLab, about, which is specifically about this and particularly around extremely ill children and difficult decisions and so on. Um, so um, um, 
it, it is, and recruitment is a problem. I believe that paediatrics is now right down the bottom of the recruitment ratio table, which yeah. is an, which is a huge issue and a real problem for us. Um, I mean, going back to what I was saying at the beginning, as far as I'm concerned, for people of, of my generation, this was so much better than what went before. But, of course, that means nothing to people coming to specialty now. There's no point of comparing it to what we were doing back in the 1990s. You have to compare it with what people are doing in other specialties these days. Um, I think there are many other things that you could do to make um, – um, pediatricians working lives better um, both at um, junior level and senior level but I think going back to the days of having very exposed inexperienced doctors on their own in acute units at night is not the way forward because it's far worse it's terrifying and um, the uh, mistakes get made and children get damaged I mean that is that is the reality um, where people who are who are expected to take on responsibility they're not ready for and as you well know, paediatrics is not a specialty where you can wait 20 minutes for a consultant to come in from home if an unexpectedly um, flat baby gets born. So you, you do need um, resident um, uh, skilled cover. Um, um, is it putting people off? I, well, I mean, I think that it is the nature of the specialty. And you think you, um, you, 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 if you want to stay in acute paediatrics or neonatal paediatrics, you have to accept that. I don't think there's any way around that. Of course, there are other career options. You can go into more community-based work. But um, um, if you want to stay in acute, you have to do that. And all you can do is make the uh, conditions that, that you're working out of ours as um, uh, enjoyable as possible. Yeah. Um Final question then, Robert. Um, if you were to sort of go back to 2005 and, and um, having experienced this this on-call rotor, um, would you do it again? Would you sort of say, yes, this is the right thing to do? Yeah, I would, but I definitely. And I, at the time I started doing it, for me personally, it was a, it was a lifestyle transformation. Having worked previously sort of uh, all day every day monday to friday with no not even half days off and then often staying very late in the evening suddenly i had days off in the week which was which was a complete novelty i could do normal stuff like go to the bank and pick my pick my kids up from school which i've never had that before so you know for for me but i know that that is 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 that's history now that that's no longer relevant but um um so um i would um However, having said that, I think there's an age issue here, In and I actually, I should now confess, that I actually came off the resident on-call rotor myself um, when I was in my late 50s, um, and I think that and there was no rules about this. There was no, I looked into, there were no guidelines from the BMA or the NHS or anyone else. So fortunately, my colleagues and managers were sympathetic and allowed me to come off. So in my 40s, I was enthusiastic about it. In my 50s, I became very le much less enthusiastic about it, and that's simply age-related. It's just biology. You just don't tolerate sleepless nights as well when you get older. Um, um, so I think, yes, but I think there needs to be um, formal policy from somebody um, that you're allowed to opt out maybe at the age of 50 or 55. And I believe other specialties are doing that as, at the moment. Yeah, I, I guess, you know, you, you get, get more buy-in if people see there's an end point. To yeah, this. exactly, yeah. So I think I think that should be written into people's contracts, actually. If you're going to have a contract that specifies resident on-call, I think at a specific age, um, you should be able to opt out. Okay. Um, Robert, thank you very much. That's been absolutely fascinating. Um, and this uh, article is available uh, now online first uh, and will be appearing shortly in archives. Okay, it, it's a pleasure. It's, it's good to speak to you, Ian. Okay, thank you so much. Mm -hmm.